Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's just read the first two uh, words of Hebrews 11 to begin. It says, now faith. Now faith. The writer of Hebrews has been bringing us systematically all the way up to these two words that begin chapter 11. The words, now faith. And the context in which these two words find their setting begins with a group of first century Jewish Christians, those who had been Jews but had come out of Judaism and made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but were now, because of pressure that they were facing, looking back into the things that they had come out of and were beginning to turn their back on salvation by faith in Christ alone, and to turn back into the rituals and customs and laws that they had grown up in in their traditions as Jews. And the author of Hebrews has presented a very systematic and thorough case for ten full chapters now as to why that's a very foolish thing to do. And so he's taken... Element by element, piece by piece, all of the things that made Old Covenant Judaism what it was, and he's held them side by side with Jesus Christ and shown beyond any shadow of, uh, of, of reproof or argument that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of what those Old Testament things were, but that he is greater than what those Old Testament things were and what they could accomplish. And so for them to turn back their, their, their faith in Christ and look back into those things is to turn away from the greater thing that can actually save and to go back into something that is the inferior thing that has no power to save at all. And so for 10 chapters, he has made this case like an attorney to a court proving that Jesus is the very way. And he ended that, if you just look at the last two verses of chapter 10, by saying, now, conclusively, the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, that is, draw back from faith, then my soul, God speaking, shall have no pleasure in him. Quoting from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk there. And then the the writer comments in verse 39 by saying, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe, believe is a faith word, unto the saving of the soul. And so the conclusion of 10 chapters of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior and that faith is superior to law. And that's where he's brought us thus far. Now, as we cross into chapter 11, the attorney, that is the author of the book of Hebrews, moves from his opening arguments, which were the comparisons of the last 10 chapters, to now calling to the witness stand those that lived in Old Testament times and his intention in calling them to the witness stand to testify of this truth that salvation is by faith and by faith alone. He calls these Old Testament characters to show that even in the Old Covenant, it was by faith. That even those that were under the law, that the ones that were saved were not saved by the law, but they also were saved by faith. 
And so he moves into this new segment of calling these witnesses to the stand. Now, this chapter of the Bible is a very famous chapter of Scripture. It's been called by some the Hall of Faith because of what it does. It just goes person by person through Old Testament history and shows their faith and what their faith accomplished. And thus it's called the Hall of Faith, a play on words, of course, the Hall of Fame, but this is the Hall of Faith because these are those that have believed. It is the great faith chapter in the Bible that describes to us uh, conclusively what it means to believe, to have faith. And it divides very nicely into four segments for those of you that are note takers and that like to understand how things break down. The first three verses, the author just introduces and defines what faith is, verses 1 through 3. Then in verses 4 through 31, the largest segment of this chapter, there are 12 witnesses, 12 people that he's going to call to the stand to testify of what it means to live and walk and be saved by faith. And then in verses 32 through 39, the third segment, he calls a collective body of witnesses, not one by one, but he just lists off a whole bunch of people and what they did that can testify the same thing if they had time. And then the fourth segment is just one verse, verse 40, when he brings application uh, to the whole, to the whole thing. And so we begin, as we look at verse 1, as the author just very simply defines for us what faith is. He says, now faith, we've come this far. He says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it, right there? I mean, we could just spend a whole entire week just unpacking uh, just what's been spoken already thus far concerning faith. He tells us concerning faith, basically, uh, he, he gives us this description of it. He says to us that it's the substance of things that are hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not seen. Now, the Bible uses the word faith in three different ways. The Bible uses the word faith as, first of all, a noun, noun being a person, place, or thing. And so faith is used as a noun in the Bible. In uh, the book of Acts, chapter 6, it tells us that a number, a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. And the word faith there is used as a noun. And so this body of Christian truth that we adhere to as Christians is kind of made synonymous with faith. It's a faith that we have. And so it's used as a noun. The word faith in the New Testament also used as a verb. We would speak of something as being an act of faith. Somebody who speaks in faith or someone who walks by faith. And so we use it as a verb that there's a faith or a gift of faith that someone has or exercises in a particular in, in, instance. You know, um, I believe and we use that as a verb. And so it can be used as a verb. But faith is also used in the New Testament as an adjective. And an adjective is basically a descriptive word or a word that describes whatever the object is that you're seeking to describe. So uh, we would talk about um, living in faith or I am a faithful person. And so you're using faith as an adjective and you're describing me. You're saying he has faith. And so it's describing what I am. And that's really the context of what 
faith is in this chapter. It's used um, really as an adjective in the context of it. And what does it say about faith as it, as it describes a human being or a human life or someone who lives according to faith? It tells us right there, first of all, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now, for a long, long time, I read that word, and you guys know me, I, I prefer the King James for reasons I'm not going to get into right now, but they are not the, 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 you know, the, the traditional reasons. People say, King James only, you know, for me it's a little different than that, but, I, but it's my blood, I can't get away from it. If you, you know, that's probably why there's only this many people here, you know, or something, but it is what it is, it's what you get with me, it's, it's the way I am, you know, but... Um, but I read that word for, for years, the word substance, and I kind of put it into English immediately, modern day, a substance. It's something that you hold in your hand. It's matter. You know, we would say, well, what is that substance that you're holding? And we would say, well, this is paper, or this is water, the substance. That's not what this means, this word substance. It's actually two words that are mashed together. The word sub, which means under, and the word stance, which means where you stand. And so when it says that faith is the substance or the substance, what it is describing faith to be here is faith is something that is underneath something else that is strong enough to hold something else up that can stand on it. It's underneath as a foundation for something else. And so faith is the substance or the foundation of what? It says of things that are hoped for. So what stands upon the foundation of faith is hope. And hope is, and you can write this down or just abbreviate it. You can just write these letters, A-E-O-C-G. The absolute expectation of coming good. That's how you define hope. The absolute expectation of coming good. And what all hope has in common is that it is future. If it's not future, then it's not hope. It's, pre it's, it's, it's realized. My hope is realized. I no longer hope for it. I have it. But if I'm hoping for something, then that means that it's something that is yet to materialize yet in the future. And so what the author is telling us here is that faith is the solid ground upon which hope stands. And so faith is the substance or foundation of the things that I'm hoping for, and thus it is the evidence of things that are not seen, or the things that are not seen yet. You say, well, if you can't see something yet, then how do you know that it actually exists? Faith. And my faith proves the existence of something, though I cannot yet show it to you in the tangible world and let you touch it and feel it. Faith is so real and faith is so powerful and faith is so active that it is a demonstration of the reality of something before it yet appears. It's the evidence of things not seen as yet. Faith apprehends as fact that which is not yet revealed to the senses. It rests on that fact, it acts on that fact, and it's upheld by it in the face of all that contradicts it. That's the evidence of the things that are not seen. And so faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen as yet. It's the proof of the invisible and of the intangible, and it can hold up 
whatever is rested upon it. It's strong enough to do that. Well, what does faith do when it when it's present in the life of a person? He answers that question in verses 2 and 3. He tells us three things that faith does when it's present in a life. First of all, he tells us that by faith that the elders received a good rapport. That is, that before God, they received a righteous standing. That God approved of them, he approved of the elders, those that lived in Old Testament times, based upon the fact that they had faith. It brought them into a right standing with God. And faith always brings a person into a right standing with God. It's the only thing that brings a person into a right standing with God. The second thing that faith does is that faith brings understanding of invisible things through the word of God. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, through faith, we understand. And so faith brings understanding. What does it bring understanding of? That, he says, the worlds were framed by the word of God. And so faith allows us to understand that the worlds were framed, the world is physical and tangible, we can touch it, we interact with it on a physical level. But by faith we understand that those things were framed by something that is intangible. The word of God. The word of God cannot be touched. He speaks it. How do you touch a word? You can't touch a word. It's, it's invisible. It's intangible. But yet through faith we understand that an invisible thing, the word of God, brought forth a physical something. And that's done by faith. And so something that was not yet seen, the physical world, came into existence through the word of God. And we can now understand that through faith. Faith brings understanding to us through the word of God. You say, oh my goodness, this is insane. What in the world are you talking about? And how in the world am I ever going to apply that to my life? Here's how we apply that to our lives. Is that what the Bible is telling us here, very clearly, is that whatever God says, that is going to ultimately materialize and it's ultimately going to be realized. It's going to happen. Because if God says it, then it's absolute. That's how the worlds were framed. He spoke it and they came into existence. He said, let there be light and then there was light. He said, let there be dry ground, let there be a separation, let there, let the earth bring forth, let man come forth. God spoke these things and all of these things came to pass. Therefore, whatever else God speaks and says, that also is going to be realized in my life. But it requires faith. Faith in what? Faith in God and faith in the word of God, that he's going to bring to pass what it is that he said. I remember very early in my Christian life, I was in my, my, my pastor's office uh, back in Rochester, the church that I was ordained in and, and was discipled in and grew up in the Lord. And I was in his office at one point, and uh, I don't know why, but I was in there by myself, or maybe there was one other person in there with me, and I was behind his desk, and I was looking at all the, the different things that were on his desk. And I just kind of felt like I was in the Holy of Holies, you know, uh, looking at all this stuff, like, those are the books, and that's the pen. And, you know, and he had this um, little placard right on the, the back side of his desk, uh, right in front of where he would sit. And it just said these very simple words. It said, the word of God is literal, take it literally. The word of God is personal, take it personally. The word of God is serious, take it seriously. And that's all it said. 
And I remember I read those words and I just stared at that plaque for a little while. The word of God is literal, take it literally. It's personal, take it personally. It's serious, take it personally. Or, yeah, you know. And, and, and I looked at that and, and I made a decision. And, and I think it was God, the Holy Spirit in me, just making a decision that, that everything that this Bible says, I choose to believe it. Whether it lines up with my intellect or not, whether I can explain it or not, whether I understand it or not, whether it seems reasonable or not, I just decided that if the Bible says it, I'm going to believe it and that I'm going to stand there and I'm going to build my life on that. And if I'm wrong and if I fail, then so be it. But that's going to be the position of my life. I'm never going to stray from that stance or that position. That what God says is actually the fact, no matter what. And can I tell you that for 17 years of walking with God, that is the single best decision I've ever made in my lifetime. Hands down, bar none. No, no comparison to it at all. To just live in a position where if God says it, it's true. If he says don't do it, I shouldn't do it. If he says I should do it, then I should be doing it. If he says it's the way something happened in the past, then that's the way something happened in the past. If he says there was a man who was nine foot nine, there was a man who was nine foot nine. If he says there was a flood that buried the world and that the waters opened and the people passed through on dry ground and that the earth opened its mouth and swallowed people up and that water gushed out forward, if God said it, I'm going to believe it. And it's been the best thing ever in my life. It has been the biggest blessing to me as a man and what it's done in my heart to remake and re reform and transform me. The best thing for my marriage and for my family and for my parenting and for my children and for the steps that I've taken and the path that I've taken and to be where I am today when you take into account the trajectory that I was on on the day that I gave my life to Christ, all of it is because of that decision of making my stance that I'm going to stand upon what the Bible says. That's faith. It's understanding that things come to pass according to what God says. The worlds were framed by the word of God. And faith brings that forth in a life. And so not only does faith bring me righteousness with God, but faith also gives me understanding of invisible, intangible things so that they might come to pass within my life. But then the third thing that it does is that faith sees the materializing of the spoken thing. The physical world was framed by what was not physical, the word of God. And thus, if God says something to you and I, then that something will materialize. That means that if God says, you have a place reserved for you in heaven, and Jesus said, we have a place reserved for us in heaven, didn't he? Then guess what? Then that's going to come to pass. It's going to materialize. It's going to be real. If God says that the truth will make you free, then the truth is going to make you free. Though today maybe you don't feel that freedom, as you continue in the truth, you're going to find yourself in a place of freedom. When he talks about a peace that passes understanding or a love that passes knowledge, or when he talks about joy unspeakable and full of glory, and when he talks about fearing not, little flock, because it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God, or when he talks about no weapon that's formed against you prospering, Whatever the promise is or what God speaks forth in his word, he's going to see it through in your life. And your and my responsibility in that equation is faith. 
that I choose to believe what he says and I'm going to continue in it. And so faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. By it, the elders received a good report and through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which appear were not made of things which are seen. And so faith is those things. Now as he moves from the um, introduction of what faith is, he now calls to the witness stand These 12 witnesses, these 12 that will now testify of what faith has accomplished within their life. And I want to preface these testimonies by giving you uh, these things to consider. First of all, that all 12 of these witnesses come from Old Testament history. And that's important because he's making a case, isn't he, to Hebrew believers that are turning their backs on Christ. And what they need to know is that even their Old Testament brethren walked by faith and not by sight. So they all came from the Old Testament. The second thing to realize in all 12 of these testimonies is that there was, in every one of them, an action or an act or something that happened in their lives that was driven by or that was a result of their faith. That of all the things that these men and women will testify in these verses... All of those things were the root of the faith that was in their life. That's where they came from. That's why they did what they did. The third thing I want you to understand and notice about this is that the writer of the book of Hebrews chooses very intentionally specific elements out of these characters' lives to present in the making of his case. And sometimes as we look at the things that he associates with these characters, you would think, you know, there's probably better things that you could have chosen in your description of that person's faith. But understand this. He's making a case. He's trying to show the various ways that faith moved and motivated people throughout the history of God. And so he chooses very intentionally. On a side note, let me say this. After studying Hebrews 11... And and this has been kind of building up in my life throughout this whole study of Hebrews. The very single, the person in history that I'm the most impressed with at this time in my life, aside from Jesus himself, of course, is the writer of the book of Hebrews. I don't think there has probably ever been a human being on the face of the planet that had a better handle on scripture than the author of the book of Hebrews. That's free. That has nothing to do with our study tonight. I just had to say it because it's just been welling up in here uh, for all this time. Uh, Pray for me that I would understand the scriptures like the author of the book of Hebrews. If I could die that way, I would die a happy man. (laughs) And then number four, uh, uh, concerning these witnesses, what they have in common, is that um, the writer of the book here, he assumes that his audience has some background knowledge. And I have to say that because if I take the time to develop every one of these stories that that these acts of faith came out of, we would be here for like a year studying Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to do it in one night, Lord willing. Uh, which don't worry, once we get to verse 32, it's going to go real fast. So you can, you know, rest easy when you're like, oh boy, this is, you know, whatever. But let's call to the witness stand. Shall we bring the court to order? He calls, first of all, Abel. He says in verse 4, he says, by faith, Abel. Abel uh, being the first, one of the first two sons of Adam and Eve in the Old Testament. And he calls Abel to the witness stand. And Abel is going to testify before the court concerning a faith 
that brings righteousness. A faith that brings righteousness. If you're taking notes, you could write that down. And here's what he says. He says, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, his brother, by which he obtained witness, that is testimony from God, that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead, yet speaks. And so uh, Abel being one of the first two born of, of Adam and Eve, um, we're told in the text there that Adam, I'm sorry, that Abel was a shepherd and that Cain, his brother, was a farmer. And in the process of time, both of them brought their offerings to the Lord and Abel brought from the firstlings of his flock to God and offered a lamb. And that Cain brought some of the first fruits of his harvest, of his vegetables from his farm that he was cultivating of the land. And he brought it to God as an offering of what he did. And it tells us there in the text that God had respect or he honored or accepted the offering of Abel, but he rejected and refused the offering of Cain. And of course, uh, in the story, Cain becomes bitter at God because God rejected what he brought to him. And um, then he, he rises up and he kills Abel out of jealousy. And then, you know, kind of the, the story unfolds from there. God comes and visits Cain and kind of testifies concerning the righteousness of Abel, which the Hebrew writer is um, bringing, bringing in all, all of this kind of thing. So what's the story? Why was Abel's uh, offering accepted and Cain's offering refused? Well, if you recall that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did God do? in order to, to cover their sin. He took a lamb and he killed the lamb and then he covered them with the skins of that lamb. And so there was the shedding of blood and it was all prefiguring Christ, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world and then the covering being given for their sins in that time. And so Abel, the Bible tells us here, that by faith he knew what God had accepted and he brought a lamb to God in faith, knowing that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, and it was offered in faith. Now, Abel, I'm sorry, Cain, the farmer, he worked extremely hard to bring forth what he brought forth from the earth. And I'm sure that it was a very sincere and sacrificial offering that he brought. But he didn't bring it in faith. He brought it according to works. The mindset that Cain brought to the altar was God is going to be impressed with what I have done and what I am bringing to him. And what Cain needed to learn is what every one of us needs to learn in our lives is that God is never impressed with anything that we ever bring to him. Because unless we can match the righteousness of Christ in what we're bringing to him, it falls exceedingly short of what God will accept and receive. And so God never accepts the works at the hands of man. And we've all experienced that. How many of us have tried to please God with our works and come up terribly short and left with a sense of guilt and a sense of rejection and a sense of failure? I know I have. I've spent years in that place trying to prove to God that I was sincere and yet never feeling that I was quite accepted until the point when I came to him and said, God, I cannot do enough to please you. But if you'll accept me on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for me, and on that basis alone, God, I come to you, then I'm willing to be your son. And it's there that God meets with us and says, now you're received. That's faith. It's bringing the lamb. And that's what Abel did. He brought a lamb to God. The only thing that God will accept is the lamb. 
And the lamb was received. And so Abel's offering required faith. You say, why did it require faith? Here's why. Because Abel, in bringing a lamb, brought nothing that he did himself. Who made the lamb? God did. That's right. Who grows the lamb? God does. You know, All the shepherd does is kind of make sure that it doesn't get eaten by something. But when you bring a lamb to God, you're bringing him something that he himself made and created. And that requires faith to believe that I'm bringing this to God, it costs me essentially nothing, and yet he receives it as an offering. He receives it as righteousness, and thus it requires faith, simple obedience. And so Abel testifies to us, even today, being dead, he yet speaks of a righteousness that is by faith apart from the works of the law. And that was an important thing for the Hebrew Christians to hear because they were on the verge of rejecting salvation by faith and turning back to a salvation that is by works. And it's also important to us because there are still some people, even in the Christian church today, that think that they can be saved or that they can be favored by God based upon what they bring to the table. And it's an important thing that we understand that the only righteousness that anyone will ever have before a holy God is the righteousness that comes through faith in the Lamb of God in Jesus Christ. And so Abel testifies. The second witness that he calls to the witness stand is in verse 5, and it's Enoch. It says that by faith Enoch was translated or raptured that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, the faith that Enoch testifies concerning is a faith that brings deliverance from wrath. The story is short. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 5. He's listed in a genealogy of names that ties Adam to Noah. And Enoch is sandwiched in there as the seventh descendant from Adam or the seventh generation. And the only historical account that we have of his life is the one verse that's recorded there in Genesis 5 where it tells us that when Enoch was 65 years old, he gave birth to a son. And on his 65th birthday, he began walking with God. And he walked with God for 300 years. And after 300 years, it tells us that he was not to be found because God took him. And then it goes on. And Enoch is never historically brought up again in terms of anything that happened within his life. That's all we're told about Enoch in the historical narrative of the text. That he walked with God for 300 years and then he was taken. But now the Hebrew writer draws from that and he says to us concerning this in verse 6, he says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So what the author of Hebrews does right here is he takes a liberty and a grace. He says that the Bible testifies that God was pleased with Enoch. And the only thing that pleases God is faith. Therefore, for God to be pleased with Enoch stands that Enoch had faith. And thus, his walk with God and his subsequent rapturing or translation was 
an act of faith or the result of faith within the life of, of Enoch in the whole thing. Now, you say there's no mention of faith in this thing. So what is the faith that Enoch demonstrated that caused him to be translated in this whole thing? Here's the faith that Enoch had to have. Is that at the time that Enoch lived, the world was rapidly descending into a place of of, of bearing the judgment of God. That is the flood of Noah's day. It was an increasingly godless culture to a point where by the time Noah is born, just a short time after Enoch is raptured or taken, the world is so dark and so dismal that there's only eight people on the face of a highly populated planet that have any faith in God at all and that can be saved. And that was the culture that Enoch was living in. And so for Enoch... In a society where everything else was walking against God, for him to walk with God was an act of faith. Because he was going against the ebb and flow and tide and the current of everything else in society. And so Enoch testifies to us here tonight and to those that read it in that day of a faith that's proved or demonstrated by a daily walk with God in a world that is quickly degenerating towards judgment. And Enoch persevered in a day when there was a strong current moving people away from God. And that was the faith that that Enoch had. It drove him to walk with God. And that was an important thing for the Hebrew Christians to hear in the days when this letter was written. Because the, the current was trying to push them away from faith in Christ. And the call to them was to persevere by faith even though they were being persecuted for their belief and for their profession. And it's also important to us because of the days that we're living in. We're living in days very much like the days in which Enoch walked with God. And for a man or a woman in today's world to walk with God in spite of the strong current that's pulling people away from God is something that requires faith. And for a person to do that, it is an evidence in their life that they have faith because they're not giving in to the current that the world is pulling towards them. The third witness that he calls to the stand is Noah in verse 7. And he says concerning Noah, he says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Now he's speaking of the flood. He's speaking of the rain that would descend from heaven and that would uh, bury the earth in water. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2, that at this time in the history of the world, it had never rained upon the earth. It, it, the, the verses, I think, are up there, uh, or they will be. Genesis chapter, oh, I don't even know. Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And it tells us there that before those days that there was a mist that came up from the ground and that watered the earth, for it had not yet rained upon the earth. And so God gave to Noah a warning that the waters of the heavens would be loose. And that there would be a flood that would bury the world in judgment. And thus the faith that Noah testifies of is a faith that is fully prepared for coming judgment when judgment is due. Notice what he says. That Noah was warned of God of things not seen as yet. And because he was moved with fear, he prepared an ark to the saving of his house. By the which he condemned the world and became heir 
of the righteousness which is by faith. And so the story is in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. The warning comes concerning this flood. Noah responds to the warning and Noah prepares for it by building this ark. It took him 120 years to build it, but he built it because he knew that the judgment of God was coming. What we have in Noah is we have the first prepper in the Bible. The first person who was a prepper for a day of darkness and a day of doom. And he did it by the leading of the Spirit of God according to what God had directed him to do to be ready for that day. Now, you say, how does that apply to you and I in our day in terms of being prepared for the coming judgment of God? A couple of years ago, I began thinking about um, being prepared for some of the things that I saw and still see coming into the world. And and I began to just make a, a checklist in my mind of some things that I wanted to have on hand in case of an emergency. You know, uh, some extra food, some extra water, uh, some extra ammunition. You know, I have a family to defend. I'm not a big gun guy. I have a 16-gauge shotgun that was given to me that I've never shot before. It's just sitting there, you know. But I thought maybe I should get some ammo in case, you know, Maybe I'll hurt myself. I don't know, you know. But but I I just started thinking about these kind of things, and and a strange thing happened to me when I started doing it is that my peace that that I normally enjoy was gone from me, and it was replaced by an anxiety. I began to become anxious about the things that I was thinking about and and, and the preparations that I was feeling like I needed to make. And I thought, okay, well, I want to have this much food, but is that food, is that going to be enough food? And I want to have water, but is, is that going to be enough water? Or will it be okay to have water for that long? Where will I put the water? You know, and how much ammunition will I need? Or if I can afford food, but I can't afford the water, or if I can afford ammo, but not food, what do I buy? I don't know what I'm going to need because I don't know what's coming upon the world. So, but maybe that's not good enough. Maybe I need something to protect me from radiation. What if a nuclear bomb goes off and there's something there? Well, I guess there's some things that you can take that make it so that radiation doesn't affect you. Maybe I should have some. And, and I started thinking this way for a long, for not for a long time, for a short time. And I started to think about that, that for a little while and I was anxious about these things. And then the Lord spoke to my heart and he said this. He said, Nick, he said, have I ever failed to take care of you or provide for you in all of your great wisdom? And it was a very sarcastic voice because God and I both know how very wise I am as it relates to knowing what's coming in the future of my life. And I said, no, Lord, you've never, ever left me vulnerable. Never. I've never gone without. Even the things that I wasn't expecting and didn't know that I need, you have been faithful to, to provide all of those things, everything that I need. And then the Lord said, Nick, he said, if you prep for what's coming, and you buy your water and your guns and you know your food and all that kind of thing. He says, if you do that, what if I leave you to depend upon the things that you've provided for yourself? Would you want me to do that? And I said, no, Lord. He said, do you trust me? And I said, yes, Lord. And that was the end of my venture in prepping for the things that I see coming upon the face of the earth. And you know what happened? The peace of God returned into my life. Because faith allows me to stand on the promise of God 
that he not only will provide for all the things that I need, but that he will also protect me in the protection that I need and that he will lead me in the way that he promises to lead me so that I'll end up where I'm supposed to be with what I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be there. And he doesn't fail in any of those things. So prepping on the part of a New Testament Christian is not building a boat or supplying a doomsday bunker for yourself. It's trusting, believing in the living God that he's going to bring to pass everything that he has said and standing there and not being moved away from that hope regardless of what the outward circumstances are. And so Noah's faith testifies to us proving that that we can live in full readiness in light of impending judgment, and we can do that by faith. And that's an important thing to understand because judgment is going to come upon the world, and I don't know how much of it we're going to see prior to the rapture or how God's going to orchestrate those end times things, but I know that I can trust him and that he's going to take care of all of our needs. The fourth, uh, that is the fourth and the fifth that are called to the witness stand, they're called as a couple, are Abraham and Noah. And there's three elements uh, concerning Abraham and, I'm sorry, not Abraham and Noah, Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And uh, three elements concerning their faith. And th- that is that they're going to testify of a faith that believes in spite of circumstances, a faith that obtains promises, and a faith that is sustained by a hunger for what is to come. Notice what he says concerning Abraham in verse 8. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. So Abraham had lived in Babylon. God said, get up. I'm not here. You're not going to find life here. I'm going to show you a place, and I'm going to show you a plan that I have for your future. Get up and go. Now, if that were me, I would have said, okay, God, where do I go? When do I go? How long is it going to take to get there? And what should I take with me? And if God didn't answer those questions, I would say, okay, well, then I'm going to wait until God gives me more information. And I would miss out on the whole plan of being a race of people. But Abraham didn't do that. God said, go, and Abraham rose, and he went, and he did that by faith. He believed in what he heard to a point where he was willing to move. He knew that where where he was, life was not, and he wanted life, and so he got up and he went. It says, by faith he sojourned or stayed in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles or tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, and here's why. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham was looking for something that was lasting. He knew that he wasn't receiving and experiencing that in Babylon, and so he wanted to go somewhere where he was find it. So Abraham answered the call. He stayed in the land. He looked for a city. He believed in spite of poor circumstances, and thus he obtained the impossible. Notice in verse 11. It says, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive, seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. I know there's many here that probably want to be delivered of a child, right? You already have it. You want to be delivered from it. I know that feeling, (laughs) but that's not what it means. It It meant that she had a child. She delivered a child. She gave birth to a child when she was 90 years old. And here's why, because she judged him faithful who had promised. She believed. 
And her giving birth to a son at the age of 90 was the fact that she believed. Now, I'm encouraged by this. You know why? Because she doubted, didn't she? Remember when God came and, and spoke to Abraham and said, at this time next year, Sarah, according to the time of life, is going to conceive and have a child. And she overheard. And she laughed. <laughs> she went, ha! <laughs> and she was probably, she's 90. She went, ha! <laughs> you know. And God poked his head in the tent and said, why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. And he said, nay, but you did. Yes, you did. And I'm encouraged by that. Because it, faith doesn't always have to be perfect, does it? I mean, sometimes we, we waver. Sometimes we, you know, we see through a glass darkly. Sometimes we're affected by emotions. We're affected by the things that we see. But if faith is true faith, and if it resides in the heart, then ultimately faith is going to win out in the end. And even though there may be a wavering, Abraham wavered, didn't he? He went to Egypt. Abraham wavered. He took Hagar, and he tried to fulfill the plan of God on his own. He wavered. God's not expecting that we're going to do everything right and get it perfect. But if there's faith alive in the heart, then faith is going to stand at the end. It says, therefore, verse 12, sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. So the first element of Abraham's faith is that he left Ur of the Chaldees without much information. The second element of his faith is the receiving of the promise that Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. And then it tells us in verse 13, it says this, and here's where, where all these things are, are shown out in faith. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Is that the faith was so strong that it didn't even matter that they would die before seeing the things realized. Because their faith was in an eternal God and in an eternal city, a city that had foundations that would be lasting. And thus, through all of this, though Abraham would never see the seed that would multiply like sand and stars, it didn't even matter because the faith was so strong. These all died in faith. Most people die to faith when they don't see things happening fast enough, right? Abraham never saw it happen in his lifetime, and yet he was perfectly okay with that because he believed. And so it says... Um, they saw them afar off and they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. <clears throat> and truly, he says, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. That's very, extremely paramount to say to the Hebrew Christians because that's exactly what they were going through. They were looking back at what they had already left. But now, he says, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I believe that's one of the most beautiful promises that exists in all of the New Testament. For the person who's hungry for heaven. Abraham's faith was sustained by the fact that he needed something more than what this earth could give him. And he looked for it and he was driven by it. And what caused him to never look back from the things of God is that he knew that there was nothing in this world that could ever satisfy what he was longing for deep inside his heart. But he knew that in God those things would be satisfied and that that 
uh, satisfaction would be realized. And then the third element of Abraham's faith in verse 17, he says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting, and here's his faith, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence, from there, also he received him in a figure or in a picture. God spoke to Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, and he said, offer to me your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And Abraham did it. He got the wood. He brought him to the place that God told him about. He bound his son Isaac to the altar, to the sacrifice. He raised the knife in the air and he was going to do it because God told him to do it. And then God said, stop. God never condones human sacrifice, never once. There was a reason why God was doing that. He said, stop. Now I see that you wouldn't withhold from me your only son. He says, now I know that, that your heart is completely towards me. Turn around and look. And when he turned around and looked, he saw a ram caught by his horns in the thorns. And God said, offer me that instead, that lamb in place of your son. And then he reiterated the promise that he gave to him. But in that act of faith that Abraham was about to carry out because God told him to do it, God revealed through Abraham what God himself would do with his son. That God would take his only begotten son whom he loved and he would cause him to climb up a hill. And that God would bind his son to the wood, to the altar. And that his son would be the ram with his head caught in the thorns of thicket. And that he wouldn't be delivered from the death, but that the wrath of God would fall upon his son Jesus. And Abraham knew that that's what God was telling him because it says there at the end of the, the account that in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen, yet future. It was speaking forward of what God would do in Christ in that very spot where Abraham offered Isaac. And the writer of Hebrews here tells us that that was intentional by God in order to paint that picture. He says he received him again from the dead in a figure or in a picture. God painted the picture of the death of Jesus Christ with Abraham and his son Isaac in that offering. But it was by faith. It was by faith. The next he calls to the witness stand Isaac. He says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. You know, we're going to stop. I'm getting that like anxious, peace-leaving feeling because I see the number of verses I have in front of me and the number of verses I have behind me and I see the clock. And so we'll stop tonight and we'll, we'll resume uh, the week after Thanksgiving and we'll finish this chapter, you know, listening to the testimony of these uh, that, that, that were so faithful in um, giving their account and of their witness to God. But what we, what we have here is this, at the bottom line, you know, just preview of coming attractions, is that faith looks like something in a life, doesn't it? Faith isn't just me, you know, okay, well, I, I raised my hand and I made a profession and I went forward and I accept Christ as my, as my Savior and I believe in, in my mind intellectually that God uh, sent His Son and, and that He died for me and, you know, and I, I can ascend to that and so I'll, I'll ascribe to it and, and now I have the ideal of what I call myself a Christian and I'm going to call that faith. No, 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 the whole idea is this is that when faith is real in the life, it looks like something. It drives us somewhere. It brings us to a place where there's a response, where my righteousness stands upon it. 
where, like Noah, it causes me to be ready because the judgment of God is coming upon the world. Am I ready for the judgment of God to come upon the world? Can I say with confidence that God, if tonight the judgment of God should start in this world, I'm ready for that, I'm prepared for it. Because my faith stands in Jesus Christ and I'm righteous because of what Jesus provided for me on the cross. Like Enoch, can I walk with God even though every other influence in my life is pulling me away from God, but am I going to let all those other influences go the way they're going, but I'm going to walk the narrow way that leads to life because God's called me to a life of faith and that faith is real in my heart and I stand on it. My hope is rested upon the foundation of that faith. If God asked me to do something like Abraham or is there a hunger in my heart that I'm still trying to satisfy with the things of this world? Faith determines that those things cannot ever satisfy And then my satisfaction is in Christ alone. Like Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he said that you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. See, if faith is real in my life, then that's going to be part of who I am. My affections are in heaven. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, that as we let these things search us, And as we receive the testimony of those that lived and died in faith, we pray, Father, that you would strengthen the witness of that faith within our own hearts and lives as well. We recognize that Jesus alone is our righteousness and our only plea, and that we have nothing apart from him. And so tonight, Lord, would you be again the Lamb of God that takes away our sin? Would you tonight, Lord, reignite a flame and fire of faith within our hearts and in our minds? Oh God, would you be our only affection in our all? We thank you so much, Lord, for who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray that you would make these things real as we place our faith and trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?